Before we get into the podcast, I'd just like to say to all my listeners, I really appreciate the support so far. It's been immense and the podcast is going really well. The one thing I do ask, can you please, please, if you enjoy the show, hit the follow button on Spotify and Apple. You do not know how much that helps the podcast grow. If you enjoy the content, I've added a link if you fancy putting the price of a coffee towards the podcast just to help with the running costs. Absolutely no obligation to do so. But if you feel you want to make a little contribution, you can make a one-off payment through the link. But again, as I said, this isn't about the money for me, but it does help with the running costs. But absolutely no obligation to do so. Now, I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's episode of Spud Talks Football. This week I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by a journalist, the 2021 Student Football Writer of the Year and current correspondent for Aston Villa for The Athletic. It's Jacob Tanswell. Welcome to the podcast, Jacob. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate taking the time out of your busy schedule, mate, to, uh, to come on and have a chat, man. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of your work, mate. Um, I, I'm massively into the tactical side of the game. And since you've came on, as a, I, I've always enjoyed all the Villa correspondence with, with the Athletic. But uh, you've really, I've really taken to your work because uh, you really kind of write the kind of style that I really like to read. You know, like in depth with the tactical analysis and stuff. And uh, I must say, I do look forward to your articles every week. So you know, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. No, thank you very much, and I really appreciate it. It's been a, yeah, it's been really good. Obviously, uh, results have helped, uh, but. Yeah, I've settled in very well and the uh, response has been been excellent, so I really appreciate that. Jacob, um, what I'd like to kind of do, just to give the listeners, and I do this with every guest, um, I, I'd just like them to give a little uh, background about themselves, where, where they came from, where they grew up, who they kind of supported as a boy, and then you can tell us a little bit how you started getting into the journalism. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. So, um, just a bit of background on me. I, I, I'm from Southampton. Uh, I lived there all my life until earlier this year to move to, move to Birmingham. Um, yeah, I've I've been a Slampton fan, but at the same time, I've uh, I played in a Bournemouth Academy for eight or nine years, so uh, I've got a few loyalties there as well. Um, and yeah, I grew up in the south. It's always I'm quite a southern boy, so moving, moving, just even a little bit up north, though, was always a bit fearful. But yeah. um, I think the time was right, um, and yeah, I, I grew grew up basically playing football. I was. Um, at Bournemouth until scholarship level, I then got uh, moved on to um, the local side, which is in the National League Eastleigh. Um, and I had a decision to make whether to uh, stick with football and go down that you know, professional route, but in the in the lower leagues, or um, or go to journalism with English, my passion already. So uh, I made the second choice, and uh, I think I'm doing okay at the moment. That's very interesting. So you spent quite a while so in the Bournemouth Academy, did you? Yeah, so I, I started, I joined at eight, I left at 16, uh, so I was there throughout my school years, yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously, I, I, I have you on for the journalism side of stuff, but if you don't, if you don't mind me just uh, briefly asking you, how, because uh, I haven't had someone on that's been through the academies yet, how how did you find it as a, as, a, as a young lad, like, going through the academies? Is it tough? Is it, like, what like what's it like for a young lad going through? Yeah, it's interesting you say that, because you uh, favourably uh, uh and announced me, introduced me as uh, a student football writer of the year. So I appreciate that. But the the reason why I got that award is because I, I wrote a piece on on leaving an academy and, and the aftercare or the lack of aftercare. Um, uh, I, I enjoyed football, of course. I did it as a, as a kid. That's all you want to do. But I think to, for me, 
I always say that if you want to be a footballer, you've got to not think too much. And I don't mean, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be dumb or whatever, but you've got to not overthink things. You've got to leave it at the, at the, on the side of the pitch, park it, because if you overthink and uh, you have the pressure on you. And I think from the ages of 13 to 16, those final couple of years, I didn't really enjoy football. I don't think many of the players in my squad did. I think it became a bit too much pressure where you always felt you were getting assessed. Um, there's so many coaches around towards the end and you didn't do football for the reason why you got into it, I guess. You didn't enjoy it. You just you saw, I need to get to the next year. I need to keep progressing. What if I get released? That, that's, that's me done. Um, so I wrote a piece of, on that in terms of when I got told that I was being released and, you know, the initial shock uh, and then the after shock was always the worst part. So, you know, you know, being in the academy is great, but you also take away the enjoyment. I think if you, if I have a kid and uh, they get signed up in the academy at seven, I'd probably be a bit apprehensive of them joining one so early. I think for the first couple of years, you know, I always say you've got to stay at grassroots because you don't want the pressure being on you too early. Yeah. And like, um, yeah, and you, you you definitely like. I mean, I keep an eye on a lot of the academies and stuff. Like, and they're getting younger and younger, aren't they? Like, you know, they're picking yeah. lads up at five and six now, and it's a, like it's it's kind of hard to fathom. I know, I know, there's so much competition now. They're trying to get ahead of the boat race, but yeah. um, it's an article I'm definitely gonna 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 get the information on you at the end because uh, that's something I'd be really really interested to to have a read myself, and I'm sure the listeners would too. So the um the so you got an award for that then. So that was so your article was based around the aftercare then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, I got when I was at university. I think um, my uh, lecturer had read it, um, and he and he put me forward to to the football rights association. And it was the first t- year they had done the awards um, for student for, you know nominee. So um, yeah, it was a bit of luck there. Uh, and I guess you know if I didn't have that. Uh, experience I would have wrote it and I probably wouldn't be in a position on now so yeah everything's worked out well in the end I guess yeah fantastic man and um yeah I, I definitely look forward to reading that because it is something I know I know um it's something that uh Rio Ferdinand and um I think it was Frank Lampard have talked very strongly about because uh, uh especially through the West Ham Academy because I know there's stories like about there was one guy there I remember watching the BBC documentary on it and they had a uh, they had a young lad's father on and he actually he came through the whole of West Ham Academy for years and he was like, he was kind of the golden boy of the generation and he captained them all through the young age and then he hit 21 and he just got released. And I remember his father saying, and they had Rio Ferdinand and Frank Lampard on this documentary like, and, and the father was just saying, that was it. You know, he was 21. Like there was never a period that we didn't think he was going to make it. And then he was just kind of let go. But he he'd never known any different like he'd never put any blocks in place for if this didn't happen you know because you're captaining the reserve sides you're captaining the under 18s you know he always thought he was going to make it and and he just talked about how how hard it was for his son after you know to like it took his son years to get over it like you know so we'd, I'd definitely be interested to read that article yeah yeah no exactly and um, you know it happens to a lot of people I just I think it's a conversation, luckily, that's been going on a lot more recently. Um, sadly, we've seen a lot of instances where you know, being released in the aftercare, um, it goes the wrong way. And you've seen it with, you know, Jeremy Whiston, um, you know, these guys that don't feel like they've got any other option. Football is their life. So, um, you know, as long as we, um, you know, that's something I want to do now. I'm actually spending, I've spent about a year doing this piece. It's nowhere near done um, on, on this. Um, and, but hopefully, you know, it's becoming more of a thing that people are aware of. And, yeah, the aftercare is improving all the time at, at clubs, which can only be a good thing. Oh, that, that's good to hear. And uh, where, 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 could, where could the listeners find the, the, that article, Jacob, before we move on, just, just so if, if they were to look for it? 
Yeah, so it was on a small little website I used to volunteer to do. Uh, it's on Prost International, so international as in international, and um, Prost, P-R-O-S-T. Excellent. I might find a link for that and put it in the description after now because I'm sure the listeners would love to have a read of that. I appreciate that. So you came out, you came out of the academy. Um, were you at a kind of a bit of a loose end, Jacob, or were you kind of like, did the journalism kind of appeal to you pretty soon? Or how, how, like, how did you kind of make the step like? Yeah, so I went straight to uh, Eastley Academy. Um, you know, that was a few of my friends that I got released as well went there. So it's the natural step, you know, um, still being in there doing uh, obviously your studies and, and college at, at a football club, which was, was great. So I didn't really have to think too much about what the next step was. Um, but I was I was getting worse, to be fair. Like, I, I probably peaked at 15. I, was, I wasn't really enjoying it. You know, football's a little bit different at Bournemouth. You're used to just everything with short, short corners, short passing. Uh, obviously, a bit of a culture shock when you go down down the leagues, uh, and I wasn't enjoying. It. I had no confidence. Um, you know, I'd I'd you know issues with my anxiety in terms of um, overthinking things. I would be at night thinking that the coach is judging me, or my teammates judging me, and you know, yeah, and but the pressure was on myself because I was always trying to get back to how I thought I was. Um, yeah. But you know, things had changed, so you know, I was I was pretty terrible for the first six months. I, you know, I was still playing because people saw me as, oh, he's just been released from Bournemouth, but I was I was terrible. Um, so it just got to a point where I think there was a couple of games where I just couldn't remember what I was doing. And, and I just said, you know, and I got dropped eventually, right, rightly so. And I just remember coming out on the train thinking, you know, I don't want to do this anymore, but also I love writing. So actually on the train home, I was volu- I was looking at websites like football, cricket, uh, boxing, you know, three main sports, um, just, just volunteering whether I could just, do a few articles not to become a journalist just to you know just see my name websites just volunteering for you know and you know I, I did that I was doing that quite regularly and then I um I still carried on playing football I had a really good coach who, who got me back on the straight and narrow but you know for the last year I made it clear to my coaches that I don't want a professional contract I want to go to uni um, when this ends and I, I want to go and pursue journalism and I think they looked at me a bit funny because they thought oh hold on you've got a good chance of getting a contract here but um, yeah. you know, my mind was weighed up from then. Oh, that's good. At least, at least you'll be kind of came fairly definitive of what you want. Like, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have a battle where, oh, can I really not give up this opportunity of a professional contract? It must be very, very hard to turn down as well. So it's good that you kind of had a bit of a definitive idea. Is there, Do you think that came because of the, the length of time you had spent in the academy previously? Do you think you were just kind of over it at that stage, yeah? Yeah, I think so. But I was just very, I was very lucky that I had, I had another passion. You know, not everyone has that. You know, I was even when I was in the academy, I was always quite good at English. My GCSEs were good. Um, you know, I always felt like I was quite a good creative writer. So, I, you know, I was always had my mind on that. It wasn't just a sudden gear change. And I, I also felt like being in the academy for so long. You know, being in around the first team sometimes, um, looking at you know, really studying analysis, tactics, what you know, the inner workings of a club. You know, structurally, I thought actually I've already got a usp here if i do want to be a sports journalist or a football writer um, because i've yeah, got this head start yeah. on head start on other people from my age so I, it was all about just harnessing harnessing that really and um you know i was just so lucky that you know luck you know some bit, bits of luck went my way really yeah but you know we all need a bit of luck in life too you know like when we're getting on you know but you kind of create your own luck too in a way you know like having a bit of drive and stuff so um, with the just one quick question about Bournemouth before we move on, you know you were saying you were quite you were quite creative, obviously, and you know that's where you will kind of go on to next. But 
Do you, um, how did you find the support of like were the academy big on the schooling side of it? Like, did they really push you for the school side of it, or does 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 that kind of get pushed to one side? Or in your own experience, obviously, obviously, it's not going to be the one one brush paints all. But like for yourself, <laughs> did you find that they put much onus on the school? Like, were they determined for you to keep going through your schooling? Or yeah, it's interesting you say that. I think it, you know they do as much as they can, but ultimately it comes down to to the student. And I was quite lucky. I really enjoyed school, so you know. For the last four years, between twelve to sixteen, I would I would miss a day every week of school to go to day release, which would you know be training and things like that. And we'd have an hour during that day release to do schoolwork, um, you know. And it's a, the teachers there at Bournemouth can only make a player do as much as they can. Like they're not gonna, they can't yeah. force you to. I was always quite conscientious about keeping up my studies and most of the things. But other other guys, you you know, they're so involved, and this is where the aftercare thing comes back. They're so involved and so focused on being a footballer. They just think, yeah, who cares about you know maths and al- you know algebra? You know, yeah, I don't really yeah. need that. So you know, they probably lost sight um, of of their studies. But in terms of the education, I don't think you know clubs can do much more. They put on an hour. They've got an education officer who liaises with all the schools, make sure they get you're getting the grades. If you don't get the grades or you're not meeting standards, you are, you're not allowed to go to day release. So yeah, I think in terms of the education, that's come on leaps and bounds in the last couple of years. Uh, that, that's good to hear because it is important I'm sure like going back 10 20 like say going back 10 or 20 years it was probably probably not so much of an onus on it now but it's good it's good to know that they're starting to put focus on it because less and less are making it too like especially especially now when there's so many foreign young lads coming over now as well whereas like like back, back in the day maybe 30 years ago every young lad in the academy would have been English with a few Irish thrown in or a few Scottish you know and the odd no, no, no! They're looking for the receipts. Like you've like sixteen-year-olds coming out from Brazil and stuff, and the academies and stuff. So, yeah. So it's uh, it's good that they're starting to put other kind of uh, structures in place. And I suppose that's just modern society too. And the, the more money in the game, now I suppose the, the the clubs can hire liaison officers and career education people and stuff. And yeah, I suppose yeah. the whole the seismic shift in all departments of football. So, so that's a positive thing. So you so you went in anyway. And you started studying journalism then. Um. Your first kind of job uh, in football was covering the kind of South Coast football. Like, was that presumably Bournemouth, Portsmouth, Southampton kind of, was it? Yes. Yeah, so with, with the um, website that I, I, I spoke about with you, um, Press International, I was very lucky because they, although it was a volunteer website for young students, they, you know, and it's quite a rare thing for them to have. They had a accreditation, so that meant we could go to, you know, journalists, you know, young journalists could go to games, they could go into the press boxes, press conferences, all the things that you get excited about as a, as a young journalist. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is the reason why you go. Um, so that gave me a bit more encouragement. And, you know, initially started, I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to, um, the accreditation system basically goes, you can't really cover Premier League, you know, early. So I spent half a season really, you know, writing about Reading, you know, practicing writing some rubbish articles but it's just all about you know trial and error um yeah. so i did a, did a bit of reading i would then try and go to as many games as i would so i would go to portsmouth sometimes to write their articles um uh, and then eventually just before lockdown uh, and on the articles of lockdown i was managed to get accreditation to, for Southampton home games so i'll be going to all them and you know lockdown was fantastic for me personally and uh, i know it's a very difficult time but I was going to games during lockdown. So that's, you know, people staying at home meant they had to read more articles. They wanted more interest. And I think that's where, you know, as a writer, I started to quite develop quite exponentially. Um, so, yeah, covered Southampton then. And then once the, the first full lockdown season finished, um, because of the portfolio I built up, I, I got a job at Reach PLC um, for the new branch, Dorset Live, and, yeah, covered AFC Bournemouth for the season. Uh, that was when I got promoted under Scott Parker. 
uh, and then yeah joined the Athletic after that so a bit of a whirlwind really last couple of years that that must have been a good season covering Bournemouth, were they? Because they were very good in the championship that year. It must have been it must have been a jovial time around the club, was it? It must have been a real time, really good time to be a part of it. I guess I sort of two two sides of the coin really in the last couple of years. You know, the promotion of Bournemouth and then the relegation of Southampton. Uh, yeah. But in Bournemouth, yeah. you know, Bournemouth was was good, but there was still a lot of rocky moments. I don't I think it was a it was a great season really for Bournemouth. I thought I think the championship post COVID, you know, ravaging all the financial accounts was a pretty poor standard, not what it is now. And you know, yeah, Bournemouth could yeah. could have could have fallen. They drew to Hull twice, Peterborough twice, like some, some real low moments. Got knocked out of the FA Cup by Boring Woods. Um, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot, a lot of fans, a lot of fans weren't. You know, they weren't overly impressed with Scott Parker, but he he fulfilled the remit. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was ultimately a good season for them, and you know, it ended in success too. Yeah, and and the promotion of the club, and I suppose what what they've achieved over the last probably fifteen years as a club, Bournemouth, it, it is incredible, and it's kind of similar to what Luton have done now. And yeah, it's 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 good to see them back in the Premier League, and hopefully they can stay up this time because uh, Eddie Eddie Howe done a great job for a long time keeping them up. And yeah, I suppose for me, I love the football pyramid. Like you know, I I love seeing Kenilworth Road in the Premier League now. You know, for Luton and stuff like that, and 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 the Vitality Stadium and stuff because. That's what it is like. That's 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 what makes English football so good. Is like teams like Luton and Bournemouth, like you know, nearly dropping out of the league a few years ago, and then suddenly they're in the Premier League. Sure, I don't think that happens in too many other leagues in Europe, you know. Mm. No, exactly. And you, you you look at Bournemouth now, and you think, you know, they're going for a difficult moment. But you should see. I I remember going to games when they're in League One, League Two. Like they had they had they only had three stands and. I'd have to ball boy outside the ground sometimes and pick up ball from the car park because there was no stand behind the goal. It was, it was just metal fences and you see what it is now with an American owner um, buying multi, more clubs in his multi-club model, spending you know, 25, 30 million pounds on signings. You're just saying, actually, you know, if, you get, if you have such an inspirational figure like Eddie Howe you know, who gets you that far, then you know, everything's going to lift with it. And you know, Bill Foley's there now and you know, even if Bournemouth do go down this season, they'll probably go straight back up. It's a it's a club that's been on the rise and, you know, they've now consolidated themselves, haven't they? Oh, they have, yeah. And um, I, I, I think um, uh, Ariola, um, I, I think they, they've put their weight behind them now when, when, when they moved on Gary O'Neill. So I think they, they, they have to kind of stay behind them now. They can't kind of shove them on too early. They have to kind of back them now and give them a good run and give them a chance to turn around because he had Rayo Vallecano playing some excellent football in Spain. Now, I know it's a different... I know it's different, but now that they've thrown their weight behind them, they have to give them the time, I think. It'd be silly for them to kind of move them on now, you know? Yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, I hope they do. I'm not sure if they will. Um, yeah, but no, they've, had, no. they've had really tricky uh, run of games and they've had a lot of injuries as well. But, you know, post if they can come out of the next couple of weeks unscathed, relatively speaking, then... Yeah, I like to think that Andoni will prove his worth like he did in Spain. So um so after Bournemouth then you got you got the gig at Southampton. Did you did you first start covering Southampton straight with um with the uh with the Athletic then? When did when did you kind of move into the Athletic side with Southampton? Yeah, so yeah, I got the athletic job um June twenty twenty two and yeah, that was for the Slampton writer's job. Obviously I covered him, as I said, in, in lockdown as a volunteer yeah. yeah. journalist. Um and yeah, that was good. And I was obviously this this is my dream job, you know, working for the Athletic, something that was my goal for a long time. Working, um, obviously covering the club I support as well. Um, as it turned out, I'm sure we'll come on to it. There was obviously just my luck that in the 
you know, two over two decades of supporting Southampton, it was happened to be one of the worst seasons. Um, yeah. So that, that, got <laughs> bit, that got difficult. Um, but no, I enjoyed it. It's you know coming to the athletics, you know, completely different way of working. You know, you get more time. You got yeah. you know everything has to be top quality or tries to be top quality. Um, so that was really good. And yeah, I enjoyed it nonetheless. But you know, as I say, you always want career, career progression. Um, so you know, I had the decision to make at the end of the season. Yeah, the, um, you know, during that season, um, what was your relationship with Ralph, Ralph Hasenhut like? Did you get much from him? Was he engaging with the with the with the media, or was he just was he under too much pressure to get much out of him? Or do you know that's probably the most difficult thing of part of last year's you Mark. Like, um, you know, I I knew that he he was probably on borrowed time when I got the job. You know, I I yeah. I'd heard from people I, I speak to that around the club, and you know, it was going to be a difficult season. With, you know, how young the players were, but for me, Ralph Hasenhut was, was probably it's probably my favourite ever Southampton manager um, before that season. He's you know, he did so much on such an awful budget, really, hands and mouth under the previous owner. He was such a lively figure, played unbelievable football, entertaining, punched above their weight, uh, brought academy players through. He loved the club. He, you know, he embodied the, what a club should be, really, in terms of growing from the ground up, selfless, uh, put things in place that he knew that he wouldn't bear the fruits of it, um, but yeah. it'll be for the next time after. Um, but it just got difficult. You know, he probably got a little bit stale himself, ran out of energy, started to lose his principles of play. And, you know, even even throughout that, you know, he didn't quite have the same energy in press conferences, but it was all, I always found him so engaging, so honest, that Austrian frankness he had as well. Um, yeah. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. So it was difficult when, you know, we had to write bad, you know, negative articles because we knew, you know, the end was nigh, um, you know, and we had to obviously, obviously do a sacking read on him that I'd, I had been, you know, writing for a few weeks before that because I knew it was coming. Um, and, you know, it's never nice to do that. And I remember, you know, I, I interviewed him for the final time in last November, actually. I think it's a year, almost a year to the day. Um, and I knew he, he was going to get sacked straight after that. But it was just a difficult moment to see him like that because I'd always looked up to him and thought he was a fantastic manager. Um, so that was difficult. That's probably the, the, the worst part, really, the low point of last season. I always thought even like uh, I thought he was great to listen to because even his interviews after no matter like the couple of nine and losses he had and everything he stayed so gracious like he's very very respectful guy you know he never he didn't start start blaming referees he didn't you know he, he like uh, no. managers they, they try and push the blame away like he's very courteous like in defeat and 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 very good in um victory as well you know he's you now yeah. I, I I always enjoyed his post match press conferences because uh he just comes across as a really kind of grounded fellow you know and yeah. um. I thought it was a mistake at the time, but sometimes, you know, sometimes you kind of, you have to make a change. It must be difficult though for your, like, say, like, like yourselves, like, uh, it was like club specific correspondence. You build up this rapport with a, with a manager and suddenly they're moved on. What's it like yeah. starting over with a new manager again? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing. I think you're probably there trying to assess you what type of journalist you are. Um, yeah. you know, and I like to think that, you know, I, I never ask questions that I'm trying to, you know, I'm out to get people, but I always like to, you know, I'd always like to ask pressing questions. So there's sometimes, you know, I, I can't name uh, the managers specifically. Uh, that'd be unfair, yeah. but there's sometimes where... I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect you to yeah. There's sometimes where managers will, will ask or press officers will ask what questions you, you, you're going to ask so they can prep their, their manager for it. Uh, but yeah. I've never done that, um, you know, and I've always wanted to ask, you know, good questions. You know, I want to find out about them tactically. I want to find out as a person. Um, and sometimes they're more receptive than others. And, you know, Ralph Harsons was one of them that's very receptive. He was, you know, he would tell you more 
Um, Ruben Sellers, you know, the third manager in charge, was like that. He would, he built up a great rapport with reporters, even though things were going wrong. You know, he'd shake everyone's hand before and after press conference every time. You know, would speak to yeah. you. You know, he was a very good guy. Where on the opposite hand of it, you know, you would have Nathan Jones, who was very, you know, he was very anxious, very wary of the press. He always thought you were out to get them. Uh, he was very aggressive, hostile towards them. Um, and I think that just made for a, you know, not only a poor relationship with journalists, but he couldn't get across his personality to fans. And I think that probably dwindled the credit in the bank even sooner than you know you probably anticipate. Yeah, he he he. he, he uh, I, I'm not going to turn this into a bashing of him, but he, <laughs> he 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 turned into siege mentality very quickly, didn't he? Like in his press conferences yeah. where he, where he was saying that he oh, could have been a boy stayed in Wales and married a local girl and and all this. Yeah. It was just kind of wasn't making sense. It was, and you're kind of thinking. Well, if he, if if he's not getting people to buy into it, like how how is he getting his dressing room to buy into this? You know, like yeah. you know, because he's saying, "Oh, I'm going against all my footballing principles," and you know, and then <laughs> you're just kind of, well, if you're not that sure of yourself, like surely that's coming across in the training ground to the players as well. You know? Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, look, it was a difficult year, but I'd say it was a massive learning curve for yourself, like do having a year like that at a club, was it? You know, like because. <laughs> You know, I'm sure the job is nice and handy when it's when everything's going well and everyone's happy and stuff. So I'd say, from an experience point of view, it was probably brilliant for your career to do a year at a relegation club. Was it? Mm. Yeah, I think you know, coming to the fire in a way because you know, as an athletic journalist, you expect us to know all the transfers. Um, so Stamford had 15 of them. So that yeah. was you know 15 new signs. So that was busy as it is. But then you know, you know what we tend to do is we like to write you know introductory pieces for whenever a manager's appointed and on opposite side, you know, sacking pieces as well, sadly, um, you know, to, to get really unearthed what went wrong behind the scenes and things. And, you know, most journalists probably hope to write one of them, you know, once every three years. I yeah. I did three, I did, you know, I had three managers to get through. So there's a lot of that <laughs> as well. And it's just like every time you say, right, who's, when's he going to get sacked? Can we break that? When is Who's the new guy going to be? Should we find out? So it's, it's all, all consuming, really. It was never, there was never a, a, a quiet period it was always crisis um and you know that was that was the issue but you know it was i learned so much from that year and you know there's certain things that you want to say you know as a fan but you can't say because you have to remain you know professional and stuff like that and i, I feel like of course, yeah i feel like i got i got a lot better with that and you know towards the end sadly I, you know i had no emotion left in in the club um it was it was quite it felt quite cold towards the end uh, because i just i was pretty numb to it um but yeah, I still cover slams when I can nowadays. So I'm more, you know, whenever a big story breaks, that uh, I'm doing it, and you know, it's been good to see them from afar rebuild. Um, you know, and I'm, my family are Stamton fans, so you know, even when I was trying to switch off from from work, they'd always be asking what's going on at the club. So you know, my life became Villa. Um, sorry, Slamton uh, for a long, long time. Yeah, the um, yeah. I mean, it, it must, it must. There must be times it's really rewarding, like uh, writing on the club you you supported. But it must be very hard at times as well. And uh, look, I'm, I, I think Southampton, one of those clubs that are going to bounce back. I think they're they're doing well. Look, the Championship is an unforgiving league, and they've had a couple of rough results here. But you're going to get that. Villa had plenty of rough results in the Championship, and it's just, it, you know, Southampton have the players, they have the structure, or like. They, they could easily string a few games together. Like, uh, I'd still fancy them to come up this year. They'll at least make the playoffs anyway. Like, uh, I, I think they, they they should comfortably make the playoffs, hopefully. But they've lost a lot of players too, and that's that's going to be difficult for them. But So, um, so on, to, uh, on to the next stage of your career, uh, Jacob. You, uh, you got, to, when when did you kind of start to get word that, you, that, that uh, the Villa Post might start to come up? 
Um, so I, I got a phone call from from the um, you know from the from the bosses, and they uh, you know, and probably a week before the final game of the season against Liverpool, um, and yeah, yeah, I had obviously a few weeks to to think about it because not only was it you know I'm leaving Slamton, I thought I'd, I'd stay there for a little while. Uh, it was more like actually it's, this is going to impact my life. I'm going to have to move. I'm going to have to you know find different things. Everything that comes with moving, you know, completely come to a new club because I covered Bournemouth and Slamton and Bournemouth I'd known obviously being playing there Slamton because I was a fan. So I had a head start where Villa was just this whole new club. I had to get used to everyone. You know the people in the ground, players. I had to rewatch games, watch games from last season, find out about people's backstories. So it was yeah. real, okay, I've got to have a lot of energy to do this. I'm like, do I want to do this? And you know, initially I was quite daunted because I was thinking Villa's a huge club. Um, but, you know, I got immediately, you know, after a little while, I was, I was very excited about the challenge and, you know, it probably took 48 hours for me to say, yeah, let's go, let's move. Yeah, and um, before you before you took the before you gave the final yes, let's say, did you did you have a lot of um, correspondence with Greg Evans? Like, did you kind of speak to him a lot about the role and and his perception of the job and stuff? Yeah, I did. So probably June, um, early June, I guess. Probably a couple of weeks before it was announced, um, I went up to up to Birmingham, um, and he drove me around. Um, basically showing me he's a, he's a great guy showing me you know where to avoid where to go what where to buy a, uh, an apartment um you know introduced me to, to a few people um meeting up with um, the, the local media as well i mean lunch with them you know matt mayor john townley um you know these guys so you know i, I did that and you know even now me and greg are in obviously a lot of, we, we need to talks all the time we you know yeah. talk you know nearly you know every week you know a couple of times a week um about villa um yeah he's a real great great guy and he, he could have had me you know any more than he did yeah no I've, I've i've been a fan of greg's for a long time he was obviously there when i first started reading the athletic obviously he's been the villa correspondent that time and i really enjoyed his work and i listened to a lot of his a lot of monday 1874 podcast with dan bardell and no, i'm a yeah. big fan of fan of greg's yeah um so um it's got, I, I'm not a bit surprised he comes across a lovely guy on the, on the podcast too, so I'm not a bit surprised that he was that helpful for you, you know. And uh, I was kind of delighted then when I started reading your article because I said I was a big fan of Greg's, but um, Greg, Greg didn't delve too much into the tactical side of the game, which is like I'm a bit of a tactical nerd, like to be honest myself. Yeah. Like, so, so when you came on board, like it was, it was kind of refreshing for me as well because, like, uh, your articles like are really interesting to me, and I'm not just saying this because I'm listening because because I'm talking to you now. But I I, I do I, I look forward to them every week, and your breakdown of the game are very interesting. So, um, you started going through the preseason. What was your kind of general feeling with the club first? Oh, thanks for that. Um, yeah, I immediately came in. I thought actually Villa are in an unbelievable position here to um to challenge the top six. I looked at the team. I looked at Emery. Um, I was blown away with some of. The- the intensity in those preseason games out in the states, um, you know, at Walsall's ground, I was thinking, you know, they're in real good shape here. And I, I knew Villa were big. I knew they were on an upward trajectory, but I thought actually, this could be a real big season and a real big season for me. Um, I, I saw some of the players. I was, I was really looking forward to seeing some players that I'd seen, you know, a little bit, but I'd heard really big things about, you know, Kamara, Douglas Louise, Ezri Konsa. You know, these players that every, you know you're, they're good, but you don't realize how good they are. Even yeah. John McGinn, yeah. uh, and then you know straight away I was thinking you know, these are serious players and it's a serious seriously ranked club on the pitch um, and yeah I was immediately I was thinking yeah I've made a really good decision here Were um, 
what what are like say before you kind of got into the league campaign, you're saying you were following, you you obviously reporting on them during the preseason and stuff. How did you find Villa as a club from a media perspective? Were they quite engaging? Did they give you a lot of access during the preseason and stuff? Were they kind of open? Were they open to the to the media? Yeah, so I, it was difficult really because I came in. I think I came in probably midway through the US tour, so I didn't have a lot of time, obviously, to 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 speak to people and I think if I came in probably a month or two early then I would have got more plans and I would have been able to talk to Villa and you know but Villa obviously they were out in the States and they're very busy so that was obviously came a little bit later so you know initially there wasn't much communication because you know we, we were very busy and everything was going on at the same time uh, but you know Villa's a huge club and there's a lot of people involved in it and that was something that, that came across at, at the time so yeah there's you know if you're going to be a journalist, you obviously have to speak to these people, and, and you know they're you know, they're as upfront as they can be. And um, you know, I've, I I think one of my main first pieces was an interview with Paul Torres, and you know, there's other things. Yeah. Thank you. There's other pieces coming coming on the way, but um, that was always really good just to for them to offer offer an interview with me um for me uh, just before the season started. Um, they didn't have to do that, and I didn't expect them to do it because, as I said, they were very busy uh, out in the states and obviously pre-season tour um and you know they were great with me and they've you know they helped with also with um the interview i did with uh damian vidagani I, I did it in the team hotel um before the leggy game um and, it's, and that was that was very kind of them it's something i wanted to do for a few months so they accommodated that so yeah everything i've asked for so far they've been really accommodating and uh yeah i hope i know there's always gonna be you know it's always gonna be um i don't know question marks and issues sometimes that do arise between journalists and, and club because you know, that's the nature of the beast. If you don't annoy them, sometimes you're not doing your job. You're not pushing them enough, I guess. Um, but I always know that, you know, there's transparent as they can be. And, you know, they know that at the Athletic, we don't, we don't try and, uh, and deceive or, or do any clickbait stuff. So yeah, they've been really good. And they've also eased my, um, you know, adaptation into, into below, I guess. Yeah. It's, um, it's like I know I know a lot of people say like like from listening to podcasts and stuff like um that they, they reckon Unai Emery is great to do the press conferences with too as well he's very he's very respectful to the journalists when he's in there um how how have you found him yourself? I found him fascinating. I think he's obviously one of the top coaches in the world. I've loved and I him. You know you talk about a tactical piece. I'm trying to I'm not. I've, I've tried to make a effort to you know move away slightly. I want to obviously I love doing tactical no. pieces, and I, I, will, I, will, I will do I will do them. I will do them, but I just feel like you know I need to I need to broaden it out a little bit more and do other things. And I've tried to do it recently. Um, but you know Emery's, but I always get myself drawn back in because I just love the way Emery explains things and how he does things on the pitch. Um, you know his English has come on leaps and bounds since his first time at time at Arsenal. He's uh, a uh, He's yeah, as you say, you're completely right. He's very polite, very courteous. You know, Villagani, who's sitting next to sitting next to him, you know, he's very he's a very good speaker, very good relationship with with media, having been a journalist as well at Valencia, so he knows um, the industry very well. Um, you know, and sometimes Emery, I think it's frustrating for him because he wants to explain things in more detail, but you know, it's different in your second language. Um, yeah. But you know. He gives you some really good stuff, and if you listen carefully enough, often when you listen to it back and you transcribe, you you realize what he's, he's he, the point he's trying to make. And um, yeah, Emery's a, he's a really good guy. And what I like about him is he never shortcuts an answer. He never gives you a short answer. He always answers it how it should be, and and that's really good of him. And that, that makes your job as a journalist better, doesn't it? You're not trying to draw answers out of uh, out of them. Like it makes writing your pieces a lot better. J- Jacob, mm-hmm. like as fans, we're used to consuming. 
the articles and we love that side of things. But what we don't probably understand as much as fans is the work that goes into them. So do you want to kind of, I know there's obviously probably things you can't tell us, right? So, and, and I wouldn't expect you that, but just what you can tell us. Can you give us a little idea of what, what a match week looks like for you? Say if we're playing on a Saturday, like your trip mm. to body more heat, the prep you have to do and that type of thing. Would that be okay? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think for me, the, the schedule is even more, and managing the schedule is even more important now than it has ever has been because Vera have got so many games, you know, yeah. travelling yeah. for Europe, things like that. So obviously, if you've had a week between games, you'd be able to work on your longer stuff, you know, longer pieces, things you had in the pipeline for a while, where with, you know, games in the week, you're, you know, you're travelling to Poland, you know, Holland, Bosnia, you've got, you know, press conference to do the night before games and, you know, there's a lot of other things to go on. So naturally, you know, if, if I try and do three pieces a week, two of them have to be match pieces and obviously that's not always ideal so that's why I want to try and make match pieces as detailed as they can be um, but yeah it's, it, as a, the schedule basically changes every week so you've got to be really you know planning I, I try to plan two three weeks in advance in an ideal scenario in terms of what pieces I want to come out so you know the international breaks come in next week I've got three things that I've been working on probably since June July you know adding to, to, to it and you know if it's a if it was a normal match week with your conference league game then it probably wouldn't get the right attention so you save those articles for the international break you know, that's why i quite like international break not only do i get a rest a little bit but i can get to put the pieces that i've been you know working hard on out yeah um, but yeah that's good but yeah, in terms of uh, a normal week if i just give you a quick summary of it it's you know monday monday tuesday and wednesday you've got to probably find a day off um uh, because you obviously worked um on the weekend, you have you have a day off. You then um, write a piece, or or you or you finish off a piece that you had in the pipeline for you know Tuesday or Wednesday, um, and then if it's a conference league game, you can have the press conference on a Wednesday with a player and and a manager. So you've got to organise you know questions. You've got to organise how you're going to get there, things like that. Um, you know, speaking to people in and around the club before and after press conferences. You obviously did cover it. You cover that. Uh, and then the next day, like today, we're talking on Thursday before the Atmar game. Um, you, you, you obviously go to the game, but I always have three or four ideas in my head of what I want to write about before a game. You know, to get my angles covered. Very rarely does it go to plan, but I, I might write three or four pages on on ideas I have and bullet points, and then I'll see if the game suits that type of thing. So, yeah, yeah. preparation preparation will take a while, um, but then. You know, as I said, I, I want to do as much very coverage as possible. So I want to find interviews and things like that. So, you know, for example, I've got an interview um, on Monday um, with a with a former player at Villa, and that obviously I've had to arrange travel, and all the company's got arranged travel, you know, hotels, things like that. So um, it changes every week. It's very busy. You, you never have a set week or nine to five. Sometimes you're really quiet in the morning, and then it all kicks off in the evening. Um, you know, since we've been on this podcast, I've just got a couple of WhatsApp messages about something happening at, at, at another club. So I'll probably have to chase that as well. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's why I love it. You know, journalism, journalism is your life, really. Uh, I all, Everything around my life builds on that, you know. Um, and yeah, I, I wouldn't change with the world. It's it's all encompassing. There's no fixed schedule, um, but it's it's a great thing to do. And it's a great thing to have such experiences talking and being in the presence of such you know elite play, people like Unai Emery. Do you ever get access to the training, Jacob? Um, you do. Um, obviously, if you're going to write a piece, something you can put requests in and things like that. Um, 
you at St Mary's slums, for example, you, when you go to press conference, you got to walk straight through the training ground. So you'd what you on your side, you'd watch your training because um, you just see it on your way to the press conferences. Uh, Villa's a little bit different in terms of the, the body more Heath layout, um, but for Conference League games, yeah, you can go go in the morning to watch um, Villa train and things like that. So yeah, um, I'm sure if I asked uh, in, in the purpose of a piece, and yeah, I'm sure they'd be quite accommodating in, in doing so. So, like, um, so say, like, a Premier League match match conference here, like, say we're playing a home on a Saturday and then you have a press conference in, in, in Bodymore Heat on the Friday. What's yeah. the kind of process? What, like, what, like, what happens when Jacob arrives at the gate? Like, <laughs> so I, I, luckily, the guy at, at the gate now, he's a lovely, lovely fellow. He uh, recognizes me. So, go, go straight in, uh, lift the barrier up, obviously, park up. Um, and then you go into the, the media suite, um, where obviously the Skysports cameras are, things like that. Um, have, have a chat. There's always some good food laid on, uh, getting questions ready, um, asking other journalists, you know, are you going to ask anything about this player or this? Because you don't want to, you know, don't want to waste your questions if someone else is asking it. So uh, that's the thing. Uh, oh, so you'll correspond with the other journalists before the, before everything kicks off. Supposed that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's most, most of the time, yeah. So, yeah, Does it ever get competitive in there? Hey, that's my question. <laughs> 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 not, not really. Do you know what? Uh, I, I must. I'm not just saying this. For me, the uh, the, the Birmingham, the people covering um, the Birmingham beat. So you know, Midlands beat. Sorry, you know, Villa, um, John Townley, Matt Mayer, um, you know, Charlotte Dunker, John Percy. For me, they're you know, Tom Carlin Moose. They're, they're the most welcoming and warmest and, and friendliest uh, journalists I've, I've ever been with. I think they're fantastic. No, I'm very close with John Townley. Um, we, we John's very uh, good. I enjoy, enjoy yeah, his stuff as well. Yeah, when we um, go to um, European games we always tend to like I think we've been to like six or seven KFCs and McDonald's together after games <laughs> we we have got the food palette of a three-year-old so we don't try anything <laughs> extravagant but yeah they're, they're great guys and they've um they've helped me settle in hugely and yeah they're very very professional very good at their jobs ah uh, that's good so and and how, how long would you be kind of how, how long are you at Bodymore Heat for like on a, on a, on a typical match press <laughs> So Unai, like every manager's different. So Eddie Howe Bournemouth would have his press conference at nine o'clock in the morning because he didn't want many people to be there. Um, yeah. Unai, <laughs> Unai, like, Unai likes his a half one. But the thing about Unai is that he can sometimes be prone to being a little bit late. If he's hungry, he'll go for lunch first. So he might be about an hour late. Um, but yeah, it's usually half one. We get there at half 12, an hour before. Um, and then you can work and work at the training ground until you know, if you're finished. So so always things me, me and John uh, there till I don't know half four five maybe. So you know, pretty pretty long time up yeah at, at Bollymore, but you know it's, it's an unbelievable training ground and the, the things around it as well. The you know um, the lakes and the, the wildlife around it is it's a very nice area to be. Uh, it's beautiful up there. Yeah, I I went um I was back for the I was back from Australia last the the opening game of last season. Um, we played Everton at home, um, mm. and. Uh, I I actually worked with a guy in Australia here. He was um he was a season ticket holder from um from 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 Birmingham, and he had moved home. Like I was working with him in Australia, so I was going back to visit my mother or whatever, and take take the kids back to see see my mother from Australia. And he was like, "Oh, you're going to be back at that time, yeah?" He goes, oh, I, "I we'll get tickets to the the Villa and Everton. You can fly over from from Ireland and stay in my place, you know, and we, we'll go to the game." So. I landed in Birmingham Airport on Friday, and I've been over to a few good few Villa games, but I, I like I never really got that local touch. So he picked me up at the airport, and he lives out like in the Warwickshire, I think. So he picked me up at the airport, and he took me to to Bodymore Heat on the on the way, and I, I'd never seen it. And we got up, and he goes, "Look back in the day, 
you'd be left in, but it's not so much the case anymore. But the, the, the first barrier was up, or was up, and he goes, I will take the spin in, you know. Mm. And uh, he was driving a BMW and like it was a really nice car, like. And we got up by the, the security, and you could see the security guard looking at us by the second barrier, and he was like, You can't come in here anyway, lads, you know. We are like, All right. And I uh, know we were just kind of having a look, and he was lovely. But just as we were doing that, Gerard, like, Gerard was trying, Stephen Gerard was driving out. So he must have been like the last one there, like for, for that press conference on the Friday. And you could see him looking at us, and he must have been thinking, oh, who, who am I after signing? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I, I thought it was lovely up, up around there, you know, around body more heat and stuff. And it's, it's, it's really secluded, isn't it? Like, so you can, I'd say they get a lot done, like out the way and stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's a few, actually, funny enough, you say that. Yesterday when I was driving in, there was a few fans waiting outside, I think they're holding Emmy Martinez shirts. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I, said, I, I said to them, like, you know, I'll just give you a tip, they're probably, he's not going to be out for a few more hours, so if you want to go, if you want to go and do something else while you wait, um, that's great, but yeah, it's good. Yeah, there's obviously a few jam, um, few fans every now and then that are way outside, often like you know from abroad and stuff. Um, yeah, for example, at Southampton, they used to have a Japanese player called Mai Yoshida, and you know you you'd always see some Japanese fans uh, waiting outside, eagerly waiting for a uh, for him to drive through. Oh, really? Yeah, that's that. So like, they're, they're um a friend of mine there. He's he's actually a Villa fan there. I think he'd done the tour at Tottenham Hotspur's new stadium recently, and he said <laughs> when he done the tour, it was nothing but so Koreans there, you know, because the sun. He said just everywhere like so these did like the, the Asians are brilliant for supporting their players like yeah yeah exactly I, I think um yeah they're, they're mad football fans aren't they so yeah, I, yeah. yeah but yeah it's, it's, it's always great to see and I'm sure they stop as well on a match day then um what does a match day kind of look like for you Jacob um obviously it depends on what time it is but I always I'm always one of the early ones there in the press book purely because the fat, the, the food at Villa Park's incredible. Like it's, it's the best. I say it's probably out there in the best in the Premier League. Um, so I always get there early. Um, uh, obviously, I've got a load of notes and stuff planned for for the game. So I just go through them, see if I can write anything. Uh, speak to people around the club. Might be you know fans, uh, players, you know people that you know I know that you know contacts things like that. So I, I always try to do something like that. But. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a. I always love going to Villa Park. The, the, the charm and, and uh, the, the newness of, of being of Aston Villa correspondent hasn't hasn't quite rubbed off yet. So, uh, yeah, I'll go there as quick early as possible and yeah, try and take my seat about forty five minutes before kick off. Where, um, where, where is the press? The press box in the Trinity Road stand, is it? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, are you kind? You're kind of near the pitch there, yeah. <clears throat> it's one. Of, it's one of the best views. Um, in in any press box really in the Premier League it's very uh, it's just on the side um, obviously near, near the goal um, and yes yeah, so I'm restricted some some uh, areas or some press box you can't see the whole pitch which is frustrating but yeah I think it's, it's Villa Park is a special ground and yeah the view is fantastic yeah I love, I love Villa Park uh, I'm, fly, I'm flying back for the last home game of the season this year and after the last home game against Liverpool and I've kind of I've kind of I've kind of timed it that, with a bit of luck that uh if, if if we go well in the Europa Conference as well, I'd be in Birmingham for the second leg of the semi final as well. So I'm hoping that uh, over <laughs> o- over to you, I know uh, Unai, no pressure. That <laughs> <laughs> so, will be good. Yeah. yeah so I'm ho- I'm hoping I'm hoping. I just haven't broke the news to my mother yet that I'm flying as far as England, <laughs> but not not going to Ireland. So <laughs> <laughs> the um look, Jacob, I, I don't want to I, I don't want to keep you too much longer because I've taken enough of your time. But I just wanted to ask you one more question before before I let you go, mate. And I just wanted to ask you about uh, 
what it's like going away on the, the European trips at the moment, going going away to what was Alkmaar like and what was Poland like? What, what kind of experience was that as a reporter? It was great. It's, it's a bit of a whirlwind because, you know, you go, you know, for example, Legia, um, the flight was six o'clock. So, you, you know, you leave your house at whatever, two, three a.m. in the morning. Obviously, uh, I had a stupid other connected flight at Amsterdam. So I had 44 minutes to get through Amsterdam Airport, which was not fun, let me tell you. Um, very busy. So obviously you get two flights, two planes, very hot, very sweaty. So you get to the, you get to the, obviously land, you go straight to the hotel, and then you go straight to the press conferences. So, you know, you don't finish work till probably 1 a.m. So it's tw- almost 24-hour day. So it's very, you yeah, know, big day. Very, very long, very, a lot of travel, but, you know, you absolutely love it. You know, you're, you're going abroad. You're getting paid to go abroad to watch a football game. It's like you can't really complain. So, yeah, um, it's yeah, it's it's something that's new. Obviously, um, I with European games as well and the expense. And I, I I've I've wanted to do something a little bit different. A few a few other pieces. So, you know, for example, Legia, as I said, I, I had an interview with Damien uh, Vidigani um, in the team hotel. So that made the trip even more worthwhile. Uh, I'm not going to Bosnia. Uh, the connecting flights there and everything else, um, which is a little bit too yeah. difficult. Um, but you know, everything about Europe, Europe's big, and you know, we're very lucky that at the, at the Athletic, they um, you know, they they obviously expensive, but they they plan out the, the journey as well. So you haven't really got much to worry about or focus on. And let, well, what were like, say, let's say, what were were Legia like for the the away journalists and stuff like to deal with? Were they pretty good with you in the stadium and stuff? It's a it's a hostile atmosphere and it's hostile getting in. You know, I I because I, I went there the day before and I, and I knew where the press entrance was. So I, on the match day, I walked to the press entrance and there was two guys, two police officers, I think, were holding guns and they were saying, "This is not the press entrance. You've got to go round." And he pointed towards the Villa supporters and I was going, "You know, I'm just because I'm English doesn't mean I'm support. I'm a press guy." <laughs> yeah. they, they couldn't they couldn't speak they couldn't speak English. Um, so I was pointing furiously, and they wouldn't let me. That there was a, there was a sign behind them, and it said "press." And I was just gonna I was just gonna point to that, saying, "You know." So they can understand me, um, but they wouldn't let me pass this route, and it just they were, you know got a bit aggressive. I just, so I just you know I went away, and I'm ashamed to say they they um they were focused on something else, and I, I snuck into the press area. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they they Le- Leggy was a oh sorry Warsaw was a is a weird one. I, th- I thought it'd be nicer. There's some areas that were quite nice, but it was quite a concrete jungle. Really, it was um, very hostile, and on the and the atmosphere was something I've never heard before. It was ridiculously loud. It was so intimidating. Um, but that was a yeah completely new uh, atmosphere and new experience. I think that was the same for the players. So some of them looked like uh, a little bit um, unnerved by it as well. Do you think? Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Do you think? Do you, do you think? Do you think a few players kind of got dazzled in the headlights a little bit? Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. It was very, you know, the preparation was great. Obviously, Philip got got there quite late um, on Wednesday evening. I didn't have a really look at the stadium, things like that. And, you know, all those aspects play into it. And you know, when when Philip were on the ball, the whistles were deafening. It, it was it was massive. It's so intimidating. I know that some players were probably used to it, but I've never heard anything like that before. And you know, for those that had the first crack in Europe, really, because I'm not really counting the Hibs game, um, it was pretty. Uh, yeah, it must have been pretty daunting. And, you know, for a team that thrives on being composed, um, obviously any small uh, disturbance is going to massively upset their equilibrium of the, of the side as well. But, like, 
like looking back though, it might actually go on to be stand them in good stead going forward though, because you know now they've had like an atmosphere like that out the way and. Obviously, they kind of regain themselves in Alkmaar a lot. And, you know, if they do end up in Eastern Europe again later on in the rounds or, you know, they, they, they'll be a bit more prepared for it. So, it's, it might, obviously, a loss, loss is never good, but they did the atmosphere and, you know, they did being dazzling the headlights a little bit. It might all stand to them further into the competition, you know? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's probably, it's probably good to get that type of experience out of the way first. You rather that than Alkmaar, which was the atmosphere was a little bit more subdued because... You know, if you play away to Legia, you know that it's nothing can never top that in terms of atmosphere and intimidation. So, yeah, I think it was it was just teething issues for a lot of players, but because it was the first game, had five more to make up for it, and so far they've they've uh, got better with every game, haven't they? Since then, so obviously the next three games two at home, so you'd expect them from this position to, to qualify and and to hopefully go deep into the competition too. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, the uh, hopefully here. Uh... As I said, I hope, I'm, I'm hoping he's uh, in Birmingham for the second leg of the uh, Europa League. It'll be lovely. But like, if if they if if they get through now into the conference, like if they get through the groups, and then hopefully they top the group because obviously if you finish second, if I'm correct, I think you have to play a playoff against one of the third from the Europa League, is it? Yeah, you end up yeah. playing two extra games, don't you? Um, a lot of the question that's popping up amongst the Villa fans now, I kind of know the answer myself, but just for yourself, maybe to clarify for people, is that they're having meltdowns at the group at the moment, saying like Villa should be on top, but the group stage is done on head to head, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it's done on head to head. I actually asked that question yesterday. Um, Villa got better goal difference, haven't they? But it's done on head to head, so could do with the uh, <laughs> uh dropping points. Yeah, well, look, you'd you'd fancy you'd fancy Aston Villa against anyone at home at the moment, you know, like yeah. at Villa Park. I mean, the, yeah, I mean to have a back-to-back home games now and and the league game really, and with the league game against Fulham as well. Um, you you you'd fancy us against anyone at Villa Park, and we're kind of gearing towards a big double header against Man City and Arsenal at the, the start of December, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That, that's going to be such a good test to see where Villa are. You know, they've. In the games they've played against the top six or the top seven, you know, Newcastle and Liverpool, they've been blown away in both. So I'd like to see that could kind of like mark um, if there's any progression and what the progression is. Uh, and that Villa Park, you'd, you'd fancy their chances against anybody at the moment. There's um there's one thing I wanted to ask you, and I don't want you to get too deep into it because that wasn't the angle of the, um, the uh, podcast I was going for. But I just wanted to quickly ask you, uh, I'm seeing a lot of Emmy Bundy on... Um, on Instagram and training videos and stuff. Uh, have you getting any shed of light? Is he is he further ahead than they thought he would, or there just seems to be a lot being released about him? And you don't see much on Tyrone Ming, so I'd imagine he's not very close. But is Bundy ahead of schedule, or what's 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 to go? Obviously, they're different injuries, so um, different severity. I know obviously they're broadly the same, but it's obviously different nuances and, and things to go in yeah. with that. Um, yeah. You know. It's, it's good that he's obviously stepping up his training and things, but they're going to be very careful. And I wouldn't, I would be surprised if you see him before the end of the season. You know, with with these type of injuries, you've seen it, you know, numerous times when they do come back. And you know, it's well, there's one thing running and, and doing it non-contact, but when they start to really start to step up through the gears, um, they can get you know strains and pulls in other areas. So yes, Brendy is obviously part in in this next stage of the rehabilitation pro- program, but yeah, it's still there's still a long journey to go, and it's the same same with Mings, albeit. You you know, you've not seen um, the same pub- public um, updates on timing as, as you have had on Emmy. Yeah, yeah, and and that's probably just uh, at the stage where they are at their their training, like uh, or their rehab. Sorry. So um, 
Yeah, look, I, I suppose you wouldn't expect to see either of them before the end of the season, but uh, I'd be kind of hoping we'd have Jacob Ramsey back for the Christmas programme. Um, is, is that going to happen, do you reckon? Yeah, I think he'll be back uh, post-international break. So, yeah, hopefully towards the end of November, he'll be he'll be back and he'll be starting games too. That's good news. That's good news for everybody. Jacob, um, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. I've really enjoyed the chat and um, I appreciate how engaging you are. And uh, yeah, I just I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. I really, really enjoyed it. So it's good to speak about everything. And uh, yeah, anytime, mate. Mate, if you, um, I know you're busy, but if you if you get a moment, if just if you, if you could send me on the link, um, for the, for that article, mate, I'd love I'd love to have a read and get it popped up for the listeners. If you, uh, if you, if you, if you, whenever it's no rush, but once you, if I can't find it myself, I'll have a look in a minute. But um, if you if you get a chance to send me on a link for that article, I I'd really appreciate that. Of course, I'll do it. I'll do it straight away, mate. So yeah, absolutely no problem. I appreciate that. Excellent, Jacob. Thanks a million, mate. Take care. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Please hit the follow button on Apple and Spotify to help the podcast grow. And if you could share the podcast with me to help me get it out there, that would be much appreciated. If you're on Twitter, give me a follow. It can be found under Spud Talks Football. Thanks for listening.